0: Always a bit dangerous giving a Kiwi uh, a Bible verse that has sixth in it, isn't it? Um, No one else noticed that, but just me. All right, well, um, hey, great to be here. My name's Toby, and today we're starting a new series as a church, looking at the... um, biggest problems in the world. At the end of last year, we surveyed our friends, our family, our community, asking them what the biggest problem they felt was in the world today. And it wasn't um, a surprise that climate change came up number one, and then selfishness, hatred, and injustice came up after that. And over the next three weeks, this week, next week, and then over the Easter weekend, we're dealing with each of these issues and asking the question, does Christianity actually help or hinder our dealing with these three, four issues. And I wanna show you that Christianity does offer you really good resources for confronting and dealing with these four issues. The philosopher and cultural commentator, Oz Guinness, uh, the great, great grandson of the um, maker of Guinness beer, but he's a philosopher and commentator. And he says that any person's worldview So you have a worldview, a way of understanding the world around. Each person's worldview must be realistic in its diagnosis of the problems. It must be hopeful in the remedy that it offers the world. And it needs to be practical that you have something to do in um, dealing with that problem. And what I want to pose to you over the next four weeks is that Christianity offers a realistic diagnosis, a hopeful remedy, and something practical for you to do on all the biggest problems in the world today. So that's where we're going. And today, we're looking at the issue of climate change. Uh, It seems to me that the debate over climate change, uh, well, the facts of climate change, they're widely known. And uh, over the past uh, year, we've seen two reports come out from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which makes up for um, hundreds and hundreds of scientists across the world in every country. And each of these reports is very, 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 very long. Has anyone dipped into these reports? Well, one person, okay. Uh, I tried this week and it was just too long to get my head around. Tried to listen to some summaries, but the summaries are all biased by depending who's, anyway. so. Um, two really important reports and every couple of years the, this panel of experts around the world, they come up and they look at all of the science in all of the different scientific areas and they seek to put it together and offer policymakers ways forward. So this is the report that if you want to know more and you want to dive into the details this is the international body that's looking at it. And it... Um, Uh, The the facts are, you know, widely known. So this is the main facts. I only have one chart for you today. I'm not a scientist, so I'm not claiming to be a scientist. But this is the key thing that we're talking about, and that is that over the past um, 100, 200 years, uh, 100 years, we've seen since the Industrial Revolution um, carbon emissions marked by that black line significantly increasing and since the 1960s, 70s, dramatically increasing. And since the 60s, we've also seen coinciding with that an increase in surface temperatures in the world. And um, although, kind of like 10, 20 years ago, there was a lot of debate, are human beings really um, the cause of the surface temperatures increasing? It doesn't seem to be that that is in debate these days. Even for those who debate where we're going, it seems that climate change is... uh, Everyone believes the climate's changing and human beings are causing it. And this, we fear, will have uh, significant effects around the world, things like acute weather events, vulnerability of food supplies, rising sea levels, parts of the world becoming uninhabitable, species going extinct, Resources becoming depleted and conflict emerging over fighting for those resources. Now, I'm not an expert on this, I'm not a scientist, and I've tried, to, I haven't done this much research for a sermon, a message I've preached in church for a long time. Uh, but it seems to me that there isn't debate on whether climate change is happening uh, or that it's being caused by human beings. Um, But where the debate seems to lie today is whether it's going to be as catastrophic as uh, some people make it out to be, and whether the strategies that are being proposed to deal with it are the most effective and um, affordable strategies that we can have. And so you have, uh, here are three recent books. Sometimes they're called climate change deniers, but all of them agree the climate's changing and human beings are the cause of it. But they do dispute the, um, the majority position that it's gonna be as catastrophic as people make it out to be. They don't think it's gonna be as catastrophic. And the second thing they dispute are the solutions being proposed. They don't think they're gonna be as effective or as affordable as um, they hope. Now, my guess is some of you have read these books, and you're on, side, you're on this side, and others you really hate these books. You're very critical of Michael Schellenberger and Bjorn Lomborg and others, and I'm not wading into that debate at all. I'm just kind of telling you what the kind of state of play in the world is right, there, right now. My question, oh, I'll go back a step. My question today, my job is to answer the question whether Christianity is part of the problem. Or whether it can actually be part of the solution. Now, that's a big question because a lot of people think, no, Christianity is part of the problem. And so in 1967, Lynn White Jr. wrote a very famous essay for science, for the journal Science and Nature, called The Historical Roots of Our Ecological Crisis. And he argues in this very influential paper that the fundamental cause of our ecological crisis is Christianity. He argues that before Christianity, man was part of nature, but after Christianity, under Christianity's influence, humanity began to be the ruthless exploiter of nature. Christianity insists that nature isn't sacred, it's not divine, And that human beings are made in the image of God, allowed to rule over nature. And so this is what he concludes. Christianity made it possible to exploit nature in a mood of indifference to the feelings of natural objects. Lynn White said that the very idea that human beings are somehow superior in the image of God, ruling over the creation, well, um, that has been devastating. the natural world. And that essay has had an enormous impact, and it's fairly universally accepted that that's the Christian view. Humans made in the image of God, given rule over creation, has significant negative impacts on the ecology of our planet. Sadly, there is a fringe of Christians today that perpetuate that myth by the way they talk. So that's one view But there's another perspective, and I'd like to give a couple of examples of this perspective. So this guy is Stuart Pym, and he is the Doris Duke Professor of Conservation Ecology at Duke University in the Nicholas School of Environment in America. He is a world leader today in the study of present-day extinctions and what can be done about them. In 2006, he won the Heineken Prize for Environmental Science, which is like the Nobel Prize in the ecology world. In 2010, he won the Tyler Prize for Environmental Achievement. He was interviewed by Science Times, a section of the New York Times a couple of years ago, about his organisation, Savingspecies.org, and the work he's doing to save species. And he's asked for an example, you know, what are you doing? And he shared about this very cute animal, the golden Line tamarind, Anyone seen one of these? None of us. This is a photo from uh, actually a zoo in Auckland, but it's actually a Brazilian uh, mini lion about the size of a cat. And um, so concerned about this lion, um, Stuart Pims uh, purchased 270 acres of land, replanted trees and put some golden lines in there to hook up, have sex, and go forth and multiply. So, he's the kind of guy that's doing something in the world about this. And at the end of this New York Times article where he's being asked about his work in conservation, um, the interviewer, I don't know why, but he asks Pim whether he's religious. And listen to what Pim says, he says, I'm a believing Christian. To me, the Bible says that Christians have an obligation to look after the world. Stewardship, we can't pointlessly drive species to extinction and destroy forests and oceans. When we do that, we're destroying God's creation. Now, um, that is uh, according to Lynn White, this man shouldn't exist because, uh, but here's a man because of his Christian beliefs, he feels especially responsible for the creation that he's made in God's image, and this drives him to passionate to be a passionate scientist and environmentalist. Let me give you another example. This is Catherine Hayhoe, Professor Catherine Hayhoe. Anyone uh, seen Professor Hayhoe's work? None of us. Okay, so she, um, according to foreign, she, she made foreign policies 100 global thinkers list in 2019. She gave a TED Talk in 2018, which has been viewed 3.9 million times on how to talk about climate change. I think this is 2016, possibly, where she was invited to the White House to give a discussion with President Obama and Leonardo on climate change. Um, The New York Times labelled her one of the world's most effective climate communicators and she's been given the united nations highest environmental honor being declared a champion of the earth i would like that honor right wouldn't that be a good title toby Deal, champion of the earth that would be cool but she is also an evangelical christian the daughter of missionaries and the wife of a texan pastor according to lynn white she really should not exist And she's been interviewed, she she talks a lot about climate change, and in one of her interviews, she she says, yeah, I believe in God, I believe God gave us a sound mind to study the creation. She concludes, how can I truly be loving my neighbour if I close my eyes to this issue? The reason I'm a client scientist, she says, is because she's a Christian. Second example. Third example is, thought I needed to squeeze in an Australian, Professor Matt King, who's professor of, um, I don't know how to say that word, polar geodesy, which is, I think, geoscience, uh, at the University of Tasmania and head of the Australian Centre of Antarctic Science. Published more than 130 papers in scientific literature, and a large part of his research has been focused on quantifying the past and future sea level rise globally and the changes in the great ice sheets of Antarctica and Greenland. Uh, In 2012, he was part of an international team coordinated by NASA that established the first agreed estimate of the contribution of Antarctic and Greenland water melt to global sea levels. And this is him giving a lecture at the um, Royal Society of London. So this is a dude, he's the boss in this area. And in a lecture on climate change that I watched him give last year, he shared how his Christian beliefs help him understand the cause of climate change. This is what he says. He says, one of the cause of Christian belief is this idea that in rejecting God, humanity has gone to the very depths, and that has global consequences. Some people have said, it couldn't be that humanity can impact the global climate, because that's God's domain. But Christian thinking says, nothing really uh, is outside the realm of humanity's negative impact as we badly steward the world. And so I personally do not think that Christians should be surprised that climate change happens at all. So there are three Christians driven in their work in the conservation of the environment. So who's right? Lynn White Jr. or these three Christians? How can Christian churches produce people like Stuart Pym, Catherine Hayhoe and Matthew King? Well, I want to share with you in our remaining time, four aspects of the Bible's teaching that underline a passion for the environment. And my claim is that I don't think you can find deeper, more solid, intellectual and moral convictions than what the Bible offers you in this area. So the first thing is this. So the Bible teaches us about the goodness of creation. If you go back to the very beginning of the Bible, first chapter, Genesis chapter 1, we read that God made all things, and and as He makes the things, after each day of creation, He stands back and He declares that this is very good. Did you notice that in the reading that uh, Josh gave us? He made light and darkness, and it was good. He made the earth and the seas, it was good. He made the plants and the trees, and they were good. Now, what does that mean? Now, remember, this is God making it. It's not like God's looking at it and going, wow, gee, didn't realize that was going to be that good. That's good. Now, God knows it's good already. Uh, He's not discovering that it's good. He's enjoying it because it reflects His goodness. And so notice what He doesn't say. He doesn't say, this will be good when the man and the woman get here. It'll be very useful for them. There'll be things to eat, materials to build from. No, he declares that it was good even before any human being could make use of anything in the world. Now, ethicists make the distinction between inherent value and instrumental value. Instrumental value is the value an object has in doing something for you. And there's no doubt the world around us has instrumental value. Humans eat plants, we eat animals, we build homes from stone and wood, trees provide shade, fossil fuels provide energy, water is useful for cleaning, for sustaining life, for recreation, etc. So it's useful, the world has instrumental value, But it's not enough to say that the creation only has instrumental value. It also has inherent value. How do we know that? Because we could use any of it. God was declaring that it was very good. There's an interesting um, psalm in the Bible, Psalm 104, where it says that God made Leviathan, this ancient sea creature that swims in the depths that none of us have ever witnessed or met, but He made it to play in the ocean. You have like God makes pets, not for you, but for Him. I mean, you just consider our world, our world is so small compared to the vast, endless existence of the universe, there's stuff in our creation that no human being will ever see. Why does it exist? It exists for God. He makes it and, he, and he, he enjoys it. The universe doesn't merely have instrumental value, it has inherent value because God calls it good. Now, Lynn White argues that Christians only see the creation as having instrumental value. That is, the world is only a means to an end, something to be cut up for our own consumption. But right at the beginning, the first chapter in the Bible says, before any human beings... We're using anything that God was still valuing it. As we read the rest of the Bible, we see things like this in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Now, that's interesting. The sky and the planets, they don't have a mouth with which to praise God, but somehow it it does praise God by reflecting the goodness of God by simply being itself. That when a planet is simply itself, it somehow shows off the glory of God, and by doing so it praises God. So the way a tree praises God is simply by being a tree. The grandeur of a tree shows us something of the grandeur of God. And I like what my friend Emilio Cresciani says, we're going to meet him in just a second. He's, a, uh, he's a, an artist uh, motivated by environmental concerns. Here's his camera, and he's going to talk us about some of his artwork after the message. Um, uh, we don't have time for question time, actually, at 9 a.m., because we're going to be talking to him. Um, but, um, you know, I like what he said in conversation with me this week. He says, trees... They're like they, we just drive past them all day, every day, but they're like these sculptural masterpieces that God has put in the world today. So the world doesn't merely have instrumental value, it has inherent value. Or take Psalm uh, 65. This is um, a, a Christian person reflecting on what God thinks of the trees, seeing to God, God, you care for the land and water it you enrich it abundantly, the streams of God are filled with water, the grasslands of the wilderness overflow, the hills are clothed with gladness, the wet meadows are clothed with flocks, and the valleys are mantled with grain, they shout for joy and sing. So God cares for this world, it's made by him and he loves it. Now, um, I want to kind of just quickly apply this. There is a difference between a pagan way of thinking about our world, where kind of this world is made out of a war between the gods, or even an atheistic view of looking at our world, which says we're here by blind chance, uh, an explosion of energy, and we've evolved to this point, but there's no rhyme or reason or purpose or hand behind it, I want to compare that to the biblical viewpoint by by looking at uh, this work of art, Jackson Pollock's Number 5, 1948. Now two people could look at this Jackson Pollock painting with totally different perspectives, couldn't they? Uh, you might look at it and just think, is that really art? <laughs> It looks like an explosion in an art factory, right? But if you inspect it closely and recognise the subtle beauty and intention of the piece for what it is, you would realise why this is one of the most expensive pieces of artwork ever sold, $140 million that this artwork sold for, Jackson Pollock. Now, obviously, the approach of two art inspectors toward this piece would not be the same. How one cares for what one considers merely a piece of fiberboard with a bit of scribble on it, and how one cares for a Pollock painting could hardly be more different. Your view of what this is change, would change your attitude. If you thought that, that a kindergarten class had made this, you're going to hang it up for a week and then throw it out with the rest of their artwork, right? <laughs> Parents? But if you thought this is a Pollock, you are going to treat it with great reverence. And here's the difference between an atheistic view of our world and a Christian view of our world. If you know the world to be beautifully designed by an intentional Creator, then you will see the genius behind everything in our world and you will have both a logical and moral imperative to treat the world with reverence and care. But if you consider this world to be the product of blind chance, what moral imperative do you have to treat this world as something that is precious? It's just like a piece of fiberboard that an art factory has exploded onto. Only for the Christian is the care of the world a necessary corollary of their worldview. God made it and therefore we're to care for it. That's the first point, the goodness of creation. The second point is the stewardship of creation. The second thing the Bible teaches is that this creation has been given to human beings who are responsible to look after it. So here are the verses. Uh, Genesis chapter 1 verse 27, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. couple of points to note here is that human beings, according to God, are not a blight on the world. Among some environmentalism today, there is a very anti-humanity streak within it. And God tells us, no, human beings are the high point. We are creatures, but we're different from the creatures because we alone bear the image of God. Now, does that because we bear the image of God and because we get to rule over the creation, does that mean we can treat the world in any way we want? Well, no, the rest of the Bible unfounds what our stewardship of the world should look like. So a chapter later, this is what we read, now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed to work and to take care of it. Now, what's a gardener? A gardener is not someone who exploits the land. A gardener is not someone who merely leaves the land to just do what it wants to do. A gardener is someone who cultivates the land and brings order to the, to the, to the plants, the, the, the landscape, and brings its beauty out. Um, and that's what human beings are called to do. We have authority to rearrange the landscapes of the world, but we're to do so as gardeners who care about what we're arranging. So I think some good examples of this are the botanical gardens. You go down there and it's not like nature is just allowed to run wild, but you have human beings who are stewarding, rightly, the plants and the fauna and flora in the botanic gardens. Um, we're just on the doorstep to the Centennial Park, which is an amazing uh, landscape of human beings who've exercised their dominion over the world and created beauty. Uh, and, uh, and, and then the final one, I mean, here's another great example, right? This is Central Park at Broadway. Don't know what you think of the building. Um, but it, it does demonstrate humans' ingenuity in, okay, yes, we're going to use cement to build this block, but we're also going to use this as a place to create a better climate. We're going to use greenery and plants to uh, as those who have dominion over the world. I think that's what a, a gardener does. And this is the divine command calling us to look after this world. Yes, use it, We can use it, but we're we're not to damage it. Now, you couldn't get a stronger moral reason for caring for creation than this. The very first command in the Bible is to take care of the world around you. Now what's interesting is if we go further into the Bible, God gives humanity a whole bunch of commands, which reveal more of what it means to be a steward of creation. And so I'm going to show you some of my favourite commands, this is the first one. Don't muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain. Deuteronomy 25. You know, if you are um, a wheat harvester and you're trying to get the grain from the wheat and you're using an ox to tread the ground, don't completely know what this is, but I can imagine a a cow or an ox uh, in a patch walking on wheat. And if you were driven by by profit, you're going to muzzle the ox. Because you don't want the ox eating 3% of your grain, that's going to be a 3% loss on income for you, right? So you put a muzzle on it. No, ox, you don't get the grain. I want to profit from this. But God says, no, you need to share your grain with the animal that's helping you provide it. That has implications that sometimes our care of the environment will cost us and God says that's appropriate. I'll give you another one. Uh, Proverbs 12 says, the righteous care for the needs of their animals, but the kindest acts of the wicked are cruel. Who's the righteous person? The person right with God. It's not the one going to church, it's the one looking after his animals. Take what Jesus says in Luke 14, if any one of you has an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath, Will you not immediately pull it out? In other words, care of your ox takes precedence over your religious observance. That's what the Bible says. Come down to Deuteronomy 20 verse 19, and this is talking about warfare in Israel, and God says, when you lay siege to a city for a long time, fighting against it to capture it, don't destroy its trees by putting an axe to them because you can eat their fruit. Do not cut them down. Are the trees people that you should besiege them? (laughs) Do you hear God's anger at human beings who would destroy trees in a state of war? God's like, you're killing people? Go for it. Kill the people. (laughs) Don't touch my trees. You need exercise. Now, maybe there's a whole sermon on that, right? (laughs) But but God says, don't touch my fruit trees. Uh, Let them be. I'll give you another one. Are you enjoying these? I quite like these. If you come across a bird's nest beside the road, either in a tree or on a ground, and the mother is sitting on the young or on the eggs, don't take the mother with the young. Oh, go back one. You may take the young, but be sure to let the mother go so that it may go well with you and you may have a long life. Now, what's the point of this passage? What's the point of this command, hey? eat lamb instead of birds, okay. Anyone, anyone else got an idea? Why is God commanding this? Yeah, so the mother can produce more. Um, this is, you know, it's a conservationist principle in the Bible. Preserving a source of food supply for the future by not consuming all of it in the present. Long-term prudence should set limits to short-term greed. That has implications for how we respond to climate change. Okay, here's my favourite verse. Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. What does that one mean? (laughs) Don't eat dairy and meat at the same time. Why does God give us this command? It's interesting, you can drink milk and you can uh, eat a young goat. It's not forbidding that, but it's forbidding putting them together. Why, why would that be? I take it that what is designed to give life should not become a means of death. So here's God's principle. The law of God in the Old Testament is dying to fire up our, our moral imagination. And here's a principle, that which is designed to give life should not become a means of death. And all of these just unpack what it means to be a steward of the world. That yes, you're given authority to rule over this world, but there are limits to that. And you need to make sure that we are caring for the world about us. That's the stewardship of creation. Third point is the fallenness of creation, the goodness, the stewardship, the fallenness of creation. Now, it's interesting that we're living at a time where we are outraged morally that the climate is warming and that species are becoming extinct. I find that surprising, particularly given um, our cultures walking away from belief in God. And it's hard to work out, well, what is so morally outrageous about species becoming extinct, when evolution teaches that, that's simply what happens. We live in a world where plenty of species have become extinct, it's our far-off ancestors that survived. Nature teaches us that the strong eat the weak, that nature is red in tooth and claw, and that this is simply the way things are and that we're simply part of nature, we're no different from anything else in nature. So what's wrong with us consuming the resources of the world for ourselves? That's what the lions do, that's what the elephants do, they don't consider their ecological stewardship. Why do human beings, if there is no God, that if we are here by blind chance that we've evolved to this point through the strong eating the weak, what is so wrong with species becoming extinct. It's happened in the past, it'll happen again. Our climate has experienced cold periods and warm periods in history. The last one was probably caused by an asteroid and not a human being. But this is the world we live in. It's normal, it's natural, and yet we long for things to be different in our universe. Our climate, our biosphere, our environment has changed many times. What's wrong with another change? I take it it's because we do feel a sense that we are responsible for the world we live in. Where do we get that belief from if we don't believe in a God who's entrusted it to us? And then secondly, we all do long to live in a world and a universe that lasts forever. Where do we get that longing from? When the universe had a beginning, it's going to have an ending. It has a use by date. Where do we get the ought from? We think it's horrible that the climate's changing. An elephant doesn't think it's horrible that the dinosaurs have died off. If we're merely part of nature, then why do we feel that? All of this goes to show that deep within every human being in the world, whether they believe it or not, we do believe that there ought to be an order, a structure, a plan, a purpose, even a story to our universe. And that means we do have a sense of obligation to look after our planet. And my suggestion is that's illogical unless there's a God who made the world that has entrusted it to us. Let me give you an example of someone who has tried to come to terms with this. Um, uh, I'm going to come back to that in a second. So here's Annie Dillard's book, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. Um, I haven't read it, but I've seen um, an extract from this book quoted in a number of books, which every time I read it, I'm like, wow, that was interesting. So Annie Dillard, she won a Pulitzer Prize for this book And in it, she shares how she moved out to the woods of Virginia by a creek to get close to nature. She saw the injustice of human beings in the world, and she thought, I need to get out to the peace of nature, to learn from nature, to learn from the harmony of nature. But when she gets out there, she moves beside a creek, she observes, she becomes sickened by the violence and bloodthirstiness of nature. She watched praying mantises Eat one another and she describes it in this book. She saw how nature really is, she watched a a giant, a great big bug sting a frog and then suck, stick its stinger down into the frog's skull and suck its brains out until the frog was a mere shell. She watches this and she says, nature is cruel, it's awful, Let me read some extracts to what she says. She says, Evolution loves death more than it loves you or me or anyone. i had thought to live by the side of a creek in order to shape my life to its free flow. But I seem to have reached a point where I must draw the line. Cock robin may die the most gruesome of slow deaths, and nature is no less pleased. The sun comes up, the creek rolls on, survivors still sing. I cannot feel that way about your death, nor you about mine, nor either of us about the robins. Do you notice what she's saying? She says, you go out into nature, and nature is red in tooth and claw. Nature, there's, there's a, and actually we go into nature, we don't learn values like justice and kindness and gentleness from nature. If we're merely a part of nature, And there is no god then there is no reason human beings should care for the creation if we're part of nature we should suck out the brains of frogs just like the the little um beetle does as well and what she's picking up on is that there is something wrong with the world and that's what the bible says genesis chapter 3 says when human beings fell cursed is the ground because of you god says to adam Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. Our world is fundamentally broken. I'll go on to some other verses. Don't have time for this one. Let's go across uh, to Romans 8. This is what Romans 8 says. The creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed, for the creation was subjected to frustration... Not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Do you hear what the Bible's saying? The Bible's saying that the the creation has been broken by us. That when the first human beings rebelled against god our world was cursed and now the world around us it longs it's like a mother waiting for childbirth it longs for the day god will return and reveal the children of god now right now the children of god are not clear you walk down the street you don't know who believes in jesus and who doesn't who belongs to god who doesn't who's a child of god who doesn't But there is a coming day when Jesus will return and He will judge the world and only those who've turned from their sins and trust in Him, they will be revealed to be the children of God. And on that day, the Bible says, all creation will be healed. Every disease will be ended and a new heaven and a new earth will get established. Now that makes a very big difference to the way you treat the world. It means that we're gardeners, we're stewards, we're not dictatorial masters of the world. We tend it, we nurture it, we look out for it, we are over it, we take care of it, we're not to abuse it. But the issue is our world is fundamentally broken. As much as we can do in this world, we are not going to fix all of the ecological challenges in the world. We ought to try it's part of our mandate but we long for the day jesus will return and heal it and that brings me to my final point the restoration of creation one last thing we're told at the end of the bible that those who follow jesus will not leave this material world and enter some spiritual ethereal world now when jesus returns It says that He will destroy this world with fire, and there's debate over what that means. Does it mean this world will, and He'll make a new world, or will He purify this world? I'm not too sure which one it is. But the outcome is, a new world will get created, maybe from the raw material of this world, maybe not. A new world will get created, and we will inherit it. And on that day, heaven won't be separated from earth, but heaven will come and live on earth and we'll all live in the presence of God. Our hope, if you follow Jesus, is not as some floating in the clouds of the sky, but it's in eating and drinking and feasting and dancing and surfing and loving and working in a new world. That is perfected by Jesus and this is the final resource Christians have to care for the environment. If God is so committed to the material world that someday He's actually going to heal it, then treating the material world around us, that matters. Um, No other religion says that. If you don't believe in God then you believe this world's merely temporary. It has a use-by date. Our world will be vaporized by our dying star one day. Other religions say, no, this is temporary, the goal is to leave this world and go off to heaven or to the all-soul in some way, but the Bible says, no, God's so absolutely committed to creation that one day He's going to come and heal it. And uh, that will happen on the day He comes and saves human beings. I'm going to give you one illustration, and then I'm going to invite Emilio up to share his art practice. But I heard a story a long time ago about a busy father, and he's looking away to entertain his kids, and uh, he, he pulls out a magazine and he finds a map of the world, and he decides to cut it up into jigsaw pieces, uh, quite small. And, you know, have you ever done a map of the world puzzle? That always impossible because all the greens look like all the greens. So anyway, he cuts it up and he thinks, here you go, daughter, go for it, hoping that he's, you know, given himself an hour of free time or something like that. But she comes back very soon after with the puzzle solved. And he's surprised. He's like, how did you do that? And he said, well, I was having trouble with trying to put the world back together But I noticed that on the other side of the page of the magazine, there was a picture of a man and a woman. And so I put that together. That was much easier to put together. And when I put that together, the map of the world formed together. And that is the message of the Bible, that God is on about putting the man and the woman back together. And that if God can heal the problem in human beings, and that's what church is about, that we're, wrong, we, we, we're, wrong, we're on the wrong side of God, Jesus came to reconcile us to God, that if God can put that back together, then there's a coming day when our world will be put back together. I'm going to ask Emilio Cresciani to jump up.